0: Okay, hello, and welcome to the Michael Mamas Show. I'm your host, Michael Mamas, and we're coming to you from Mount Soma, home of the Sri Simeshwaru Temple in the mountains of Western North Carolina. It's been so foggy here. Uh, You know, it's living in the mountains is really nice because, like, a lot of times we're on this mountain and we can look over at other mountains, and you can see that they're in a cloud. You know, the top of the distant mountain is in a cloud. And for the past several days, this mountain has been in a cloud. And, you know, people down the valley tell me that they can look up and see. It's sunny down there, and we're in a cloud up here. But, you know, I can hardly see um, uh, right outside, you know, the trees right outside my house because the fog is so thick. So it's fun. It's, It's beautiful, really. And the feeling is so silent and still, you know. At any rate, um, oh, we got Scotty. You you sent me a picture. Yeah. At, at first, I didn't know what it. I just had my cell phone. You know, I didn't even know what it is. Uh, uh, but then, when I you know got to my computer and put it bigger, it almost looked like a crop circle or something.
1: Yeah.
0: You know. Hmm. But uh, t- tell me a little more about that.
1: Um. One of the parents at my younger son's uh, school is a toy maker, but he's an artist. And so he designed this shape-shifting toy. It's like a geometric toy, but his passion is art. And they go on the full moons down to the beaches, and then they rake out the sand, make it smooth, and then they make these geometric patterns on the sand.
0: I mean, that's that thing the, was huge. Was, it must have taken him forever to make it.
1: It took them like three hours.
0: Yeah. to oh, do really? it Yeah. It, I, it would seem like it would take three days to make something like that. At it, any rate, if you go to, you know, michaelmamas.net, that's the picture that we're going to use. Yeah. And I, I feel like. That,
1: what's that? He does that with, it's just with rake, like a rake. Like you rake your yard, Incredible. you know.
0: Incredible. Yeah. I was watching this thing on uh television about crop circles, you know yeah they they are pretty mind blowing I mean how they do it and and the their complexity and the mathematics behind the structures and the perfection with which they're made, and they can't see any footprints or anything of how people would have gotten out there to make them, you know yeah, I don't know <laughs> at any rate, speaking of formless genius, which is the topic of this blog, um, I think the best way to do this is to start out by by taking a little look at, you know, Darwin's theory, just in the sense of, uh, how the, how the mind developed after we have a species called humans. How was the mind developed? You know, they talk about how, uh, uh, anthropologists have seen monkeys, the first tool, you know. Uh, anthropologists saw monkeys at an anthill, and they took a blade of grass and they stuck it down the anthill hole, and then the ants would crawl all over it, and then they'd pull it out, and then the monkeys would eat the ants. And, you know, take that same um, approach, that same technology, really, And, uh, just amplify it multifold and you've got modern mentality. You know, in other words, there's a a system that gets developed over time that sort of determines how the mind thinks and how the mind functions. And, uh, you know, education is considered getting better at doing precisely that. Uh, but if you think about it, it's a it's a, it's a loop. It's a system that works within its own dynamic. And it's great. I mean, I'm not knocking it. You know, we're landing people on the moon and everything else. But nevertheless, I think it's good to take a, st- a step back and take a look at that dynamic and how it determines the mode of function of the human mind. Am I, are you with me there, Scotty? Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, we could say... Really, in a nutshell, that's the Western approach to science. You know, uh, do an experiment, see what comes back, learn from it, observation, and they build up a a world of understanding of the nature of the universe. Now, let's contrast that to uh, uh, Vedic knowledge. And really, and we'll get into this, but they're not 100% divorced from one another, even though they Might at first glance appear to be. And the reason for that, I guess I'll say it now, is because the Vedic approach does, is at work. Even if people don't realize that it is, you know, the source of genius, really. But at any rate, I don't want to get the cart before the horse here, because here's the Vedic approach is that the underlying essence of everything is that field of infinite intelligence that birthed the whole universe. So all knowledge, not just one uh, mechanism of behavior, uh, but an infinite number of different you know, paradigms, if you will, systems, if you will, are all structured within that formless form, that absolute form, that unbounded form that is pure isness, pure consciousness interacting with itself. That creates a highly complex structure, mm-hmm. Even though it's very simple, really, it's just oneness interacting with itself. But it creates an underlying structure that is the source that birth and maintains everything. And what evolution then is, is real real evolution. What it's really about is the idea that species uh, evolve and gravitate in the direction of. Tapping more and more fully into the intelligence, wisdom, harmony, coherence like that that exists within that underlying basis. And everything is gravitating in that direction, being pushed, pulled, however, you want to say it, just naturally, like as natural as a leaf falling from a tree in the in autumn, you know, gravitating back to uh source. Okay, now um uh, Within the structure of Veda, then, there are two things I want to talk about. One is called Shruti. Shruti is that absolute field, that self-interacting dynamic of pure isness within itself. Uh, Seamless, kind of like, to find one way of kind of alluding to it, with mathematical precision, you know, a field of perfection, really. Uh, that's what the one of the things I liked about mathematics is it's like a it's like a uh, field of perfection that all sorts of structures are contained within it, limitless, you know. And the absolute is like that, and that's called uh, the field of shruti. Now as things emerge into relativity, then the awareness gets preoccupied with that, which is relative. That's why they call it relativity. So instead of functioning within that perfect self-interacting dynamic, it's sort of as if we get lost into the amazing maze of that structure. And it's, as species evolve, they, are able to just pull out a very limited amount of the of the uh, knowledge, wisdom, intelligence that's existed in that deeper level, like the monkey sticking a straw down an anthill, you see. Uh, but now, within that relative field of existence, through which you know species evolve from amoebas through lizards, birds dinosaurs, you know, that whole thing. Um, there's another mechanism that's going on, not shruti, but smirti. Smirti is like memory. It's sort of like that, which gets retained through the gap, if you will, between, um, and, and that, <laughs> that gap is really a beautiful thing to talk about, but it's another subject. Um, the gap between um, Shruti, the, the absolute, and the relative. So that it's called memory. And so you could say that the whole process of evolution is the process of remembering with that inner intelligence that's inherent in all things, inherent in everything. Uh, but it's like as we enter into relativity and get overshadowed by the nature of relativity we forget. And so as species evolve, they slowly, slowly re, re remember. Until you arrive at a point where you have a species that has a nervous system that's evolved enough, that's gravitated back enough, that's mirroring through that process of gravitation uh, a la smirti, that it can actually awaken to Seamlessly integrate with the fullness of the grandeur of uh, that absolute value, the, the, the shruti value. Uh, that, and they call that moksha, liberation, enlightenment, what have you. But now here's the thing too. There are so many different modes of function that we can align with, that we can live Uh, that 's a highly individual thing. there are great musicians and they 're an enlightened musician. You see who would be functioning and bringing the music with limitless clarity and perfection. This is the idea uh that 's contained within the absolute that is the source of uh music in the branch of veda that 's called Gandharva veda um And we all have our own individual means then of communing, if you will, with that divinity. It's highly individual. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, you've got mathematicians, you've got musicians, you've got uh, athletes. Uh, What else, Scotty? You've got homemakers, you've got um, engineers, you've got, you know, there's no limit. Yeah. yeah. Accountants, you know, um, Somebody once, very recently, somebody asked me. I do not have to. What? How exactly they put it? You know. Why do I love Shiva? That's what they asked me. And um, we'll see the word "love." There, it's an interesting word, you know, because I think, what does a person really mean by love? I think on some level to some degree. I mean, certainly we love our children in a way that goes beyond everything really. But uh, when you love Shiva or even when we fall in love or whatever, largely those things can be um, certainly at first or emotionally based. And so to me, when I was asked, you know, why do you love Shiva? It's like, well, it would make it too limited to say that the love is comes in the form of uh, an emotional thing. I mean maybe I can get emotional about it but but the love experience itself or Shiva, if you will, is um, uh, not emotionally based And now so, it goes directly into who I am, how I function as an individual. There's musicians, there are accountants, there are you know artists of all sorts. And maybe maybe a musician might find their communion with Shiva, and by Shiva I mean the absolute, you know, the personified aspect, but and also the abstract aspect. But they might communicate with Shiva then through their music. Uh, for me, what really, you could say, floats my boat, the way I work, is just the deeply profound understandings. And I, I, I can even touch into that place for myself, even through mathematics. Uh, concepts. Concepts. Uh, To me, concepts are much more meaningful than facts. It's the concept, it's the understanding and the depth of it, the profundity of it. Uh, Even hearing a great lecture with profound insights. uh, And to me, what that touches inside of me is my love for Shiva, my love for God, my love for existence my fascination you know uh and it doesn't mean that uh if a a musician then can't have that no they can have that too uh just and just because i'm not a great musician doesn't mean that i can't transcend is the word on music transcend means like in meditation we transcend on a mantra And what happens then is the awareness just gravitates back to what? That place where it naturally gravitates to. Again, like a leaf falling to earth. The awareness naturally gravitates to that unbounded field. The absolute. And you can transcend on anything. But in the field of action, in the field of life, people as I've said, trans, tend to transcend on one thing or another as their natural affinity, their natural personal affinity. One's not better than the other, it's just, they're different. Uh, and for me, it's just depth of understanding, you know? Uh, uh, but that's the beauty of meditation because with proper meditation, it's something we can all do and we can do it systematically. You just sit down, you do the very simple technique of what I call proper meditation because there, are seeing the reason I call it proper is because there are meditations where you control the mind. There are meditations where you program the mind. There are even meditations where you rip open your chakras and see a bunch of light and think you're enlightened, which is horrible. That's uh, called left-handed tantra. But uh, 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 that's the beauty of proper meditation is that everybody and anybody can do it. It's easy. It's simple. It's systematic. And you sit down and you do it for however long, 20 minutes or whatever. Uh, But the thing is, the mind gets conditioned. It gets programmed to think a certain way. And it's through that condition. I mean, talking about identity, we become so consumed by the mode of function of our awareness that even if it is incongruent with the true nature of existence, we still insist upon it. Not necessarily, you know, theoretically, oh, I believe this, it could be that way too, but even emotionally, beyond emotion, physiologically, you see? And so emancipation is largely it's freedom from that, uh, consumption of the mind by a program system that started millions of years ago when that monkey stuck a blade of grass into an anthill. And so human evolution, that final step I'm talking about, human evolution, there's evolution of species. But then once you get a species that's capable, namely human beings, capable of having the awareness that transcends and functions from that place uh, uh, without distortion. Uh, And again, based on the person's own individual nature will determine how it's expressed. But that final evolutionary step, it's huge. You know, the, 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 um, anthropologists talk about that, Time I don't know how long ago thousands of years, at least when there was the big bang of the brain. You know, it was like all of a sudden the size of the brain in a Darwinian evolutionary sense just got bigger. They call the big bang of the brain. They don't really understand it. Well, what that was was that the species finally developed evolved enough that there was a brain that was sophisticated enough. Gravitated closely enough, like compared to like a a uh, mother ship being the absolute, and then you have a little satellite in space, and it's approaching the docking station. The docking station closer, closer, closer to the mother ship, and then finally, one moment, click, and all of a sudden, it's running on two hundred twenty volts from the mother station instead of its wearing down battery. You know, and so that's the big bang of the brain. But there's another that maps onto another deeper big bang in the brain, which we call enlightenment, which is when it's not just that we have a brain developed to the point where it can do that, but now we have a refinement of our awareness through meditation and like that, where the mind actually does do that. So we're no longer limited to one paradigm or another one approach or another, one mentality or another. What next necessarily followed from sticking a blade of grass into an anthill. But now we've become free. That's why they call it emancipation, spiritual emancipation. Now, there are people to this day, and I'm talking now mostly and I think I'll limit it to their scholars in India. And why do we speak it in terms of India? Because India is that place where the Veda, in other words, that structure that was cognized by the ancient rishis, that structure of the perfect um, dynamic within the uh, absolute itself was re- recorded, was maintained, and, th- and through Vedic literature was expressed but it's in the language of nature, not the language of humans. So you just can't pick it up and read and say, okay, I get it. No, 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 it's far beyond that. But nevertheless, there are scholars in India who do have tremendous knowledge of what that Vedic literature, what that Vedic knowledge really means and how to actually employ it in a sophisticated way. And there they have a knowledge that can transform all humanity. Uh, one branch is called Stepatya Ved. Ved. is the knowledge of structure, the knowledge of architecture. Uh, 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 sometimes it's referred to as fence because what it does is it takes space and puts a fence around spaces to define those infinite number of different spaces and proportions and everything within a whole new language that represents a whole new paradigm of understanding and then it can create then an understanding that interfaces and enlivens and awakens to the relative to that smirty value within the absolute so the memory then becomes a remembering a reunification with the perfection and the absolute. And so through Sapatya Ved architecture, that's what it's about. It's building a facility, if you will, that brings forth, amplifies, and radiates that value of smirti to the environment. And it's there. There are Vedic scholars in India right now that have that knowledge. There are Vedic scholars in India right now that have an the knowledge of meditation, um, proper meditation. as defined by how I just defined proper meditation a minute ago. But the thing is, it's incredible. Because if you get into Vedic literature, I mean, the knowledge there is vast; It's unbelievable. So it's incredible that it's largely ignored. Society doesn't really even pay attention. Even if you look at um, history of the world, and uh, uh, how knowledge came about and, and, you know, ancient Greece, Mesopotamia, that whole thing, this whole body of Vedic literature and the role of that knowledge in the history of the world is largely, it's just basically, it's ignored. It's not really considered that relevant, you know? Um, but never the, and why? Because we're, still identified, you know, as a global mentality, really. It's overtaken by this mentality of taking a blade of grass and sticking it in an anthill and pulling out some ants. (laughs) It's incredible. Uh, But that's really not even that simplistic, you know. It all just follows. Um, That kind of mentality just blossomed into what we think of as knowledge today, you know. So how to heal the planet isn't to take a paradigm that we're identified with and try to impose it on the rest of the world, which is, that's what's done. Oh, if everybody just thought the way we thought, then the world would be fine. You know, that's not going to work because it's limited. But if we take this value within the absolute that upholds an infinite number of different paradigms and an infinite number of different cultures and a number of infinite number of different mentalities, cultures, like that, but gives them a, the root. The root is what? The root is, is shruti, found through smirti by remembering with that source of all things that is infinitely intelligent, infinitely wise, infinitely coherent. But to get lost to the surface and not be attached to the root, we just go off and and running. And and, um, even in the arena of um, Vedic knowledge um, in Hinduism, which is based on the Veda, uh, the knowledge is delicate. You can almost say like it's almost all done with mirrors, you know. So it's easy to get lost, and and uh, uh, and it's so beautiful that we can, over generations or whatever, get lost in the emotions of the thing and li- lose touch with the rationality behind it. And you know, the mind has two lobes, two hemispheres of the brain: the rational and the emotional. And it's when those two are functioning in perfect harmony with one another that we have real knowledge. But if we get off on a tangent with um, emotionality, then boom, superstition creeps in, you know? And and uh, that's why a lot of times I think in the world today, we do tend to ignore Vedic knowledge and, and these great Vedic scholars. Why? Because we clump it together with superstitious uh, Um, cults or movements or whatever that are just tangential offsprings of a field of knowledge that's exquisite. And that's true not just in Hinduism, it's true in all religions, Christianity. That's why I love, and I say this on the Siri podcast, but I love reading these quotes that they put on billboards outside of Baptist churches here. And I mean, there's it. The knowledge is there, but it's expressed in a way that Um, people tend to roll their eyes, you know, it's like, Oh, Jesus loves you. You know, what the heck does that mean? Uh, uh, But once you get onto the deeper meaning and the deeper understanding of Vedic wisdom, then it's like, Oh, okay. Now I see what that means. And yes, it does make sense. But boy, could I see how somebody could get off on a tangent with that. And right now, as, as uh, religions are waning in popularity in, in the world. I mean, Scotty, I even saw, um, what, what was it? There was a guy who wanted to give a talk in a library about a book he re- wrote that was based, for children, that was based on um, Christianity. And they, the library would not allow him to do it. It was a book about Christmas, and the library would not allow to do it. But at the same time, they allowed somebody to come in there and give a lecture on to children about transsexual life. And that makes quite a statement for, you know, the attitude based on everything I've just said, the attitude that is seemingly quite popular. I don't know how popular it is, but it's some areas has overtaken a mentality where you know okay let's have the children learn about transsexuals but let's not let them learn about Christianity and, and I think we just touch on why why that all is you know there's a great field of knowledge there. And because things have gotten distorted through superstition, lack of understanding, identity with a certain paradigm, like sticking a blade of grass in an anthill and the extrapolations from that, that we've really um, lost the essence. And we're just often running on tangents that go a million different ways. But, you know, that's why we are building Mount Soma is to create something that enlivens our communion with that deeper understanding of the true nature of life and existence. And it's not a religion. It's a science. This is the nature of existence and a reunification with it, uh, uh, an emancipation from the tangents that have overtaken human mentality and gotten us into the mess that we're in today. Um, Anything else on that, Scotty? Otherwise, I'm going to go on real briefly here to current events. Yeah, you've hit it pretty good. Okay. Um, If you go to the blog, michaelmamas.net, you know, to watch this podcast, at least take a look and scroll through the notes every week because uh, a lot that I put in the notes aren't in the podcast. A lot that I say in the podcast isn't isn't really in the notes for that matter. But – just a few things you can read. read A lot of them are just so self-evident. But I got a real quick out of this quote I heard. And they were saying that the argument was that it doesn't have to make sense. And I don't know, that just tickled my funny bone. You know, yes, it does. It has to make sense on some level in some way. But, you know... I think it was in the political arena of a justification for some approach or attitude or something. And the response was, it doesn't have to make sense. Well, it does have to make sense. Another quote I liked was John McEnroe, that that, uh, tennis player. He was number one for years. And it was really a nice quote. he says, and it was just a throwaway line. It wasn't expressed as a quote. He was just talking. But he said, you have to develop an attitude to be great at something. Scotty, I know you're doing some work with uh, kids, uh, students at your kids' school. Yeah. There's a quote for you. Yeah. You know, it's an attitude. Sure. You know, and that's one reason why I know that even when I was a physics and math major in undergrad, I was good at it. And that gave me reinforcement. That that really did feed an attitude. I knew I was great at it, you know? And it created an attitude which perpetuated my ability, you know. I, th- I think um getting that kind of recognition is important, but not you know, giving all the kids a trophy. But when when something is really acknowledged, uh it creates an attitude and it leads us to further greatness. Um And I think we all do well. There there are things in life. Everybody finds something that they're they're great at. And and it will feed an attitude if if, um, it's encouraged, if it's supported. We're not talking about oblivion here. We're not talking about denial. But we're talking about the cultivation of real greatness and the role that attitude has to play in that. Is that, Scotty, anything else you want to say about that? Or is that?
1: No. um, Well, one of the things I kind of wanted to work with these guys on was like more of a protocol to kind of help them. And I know we can meditate, you know, just to, you know, there's a lot of anxiety going on right Mm -hmm. now, you know, what's happening in the world and do I have to be this or, you know, that, or, you know, the whole Kardashian syndrome or the, what, what people think syndrome or just, just the stuff about being a teenager and, Maybe you could speak to, like, what you'd recommend a protocol to kind of help them uh, do some things that can kind of help them navigate. I may have
0: talked about this before. But I was given a lecture once, a talk to a bunch of fifth graders. And, uh, you know, one thing that our children have really been um, taught for lack of a better word, is that the world is really screwed up and that it might come to an end in 12 years, you know, with global warming and and uh, there's this horrible thing and that horrible thing and everything's horrible and teach them to hide under their desks because there could be an atomic explosion, you know, this kind of thing. And I don't know. I didn't think it was that big of an agenda, but I was saying that, look at, you know, Always things like that come up, but great things emerge that transform everything. The Industrial Revolution, complete with its problems, no question, but at the same time, it birthed um, the construction of homes and bridges and, 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 and so much with the Industrial Revolution, the computer revolution. Uh, and it made so much acts accessible. And of course, not everyone, all of it is good. Um but nevertheless, it, 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 the net effect, after all the f- craziness is sorted out, like with the industrial revolution and now with the computer revolution, then the internet revolution and the great way we can all communicate through the internet, but the problems coming with that, and that all gets sorted out. there will be more ongoing new discoveries, new inventions. You know, people think of viruses as a bad thing. So I talked there about how there's a virus that exists in a certain insect. And if there's a drought, and so the insects don't have enough water and they're going to die, then that virus takes over in their bodies and stimulates wings to grow. And so they grow wings and they fly away to a healthier place. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? There, are, I forget the other ones. There are other things like that, the viruses. So we've only begun to discover the value of viruses. And what a shame that, you know, uh, what do they call it? A function, um, where the research we do in viruses is how to make them more damaging. Right. I mean, what a shame, gain of function. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the time will come when we discover, just like now we know that, you know, bacteria is good and it's necessary, gut health, and on and on. Uh, that Things like that will happen. And it's going to be a great world. We're on, we are on the crux of so many great discoveries, so many great innovations, so many great new awakenings. And I talked about it after my lecture. Some of the kids were in tears. One of them came up to me. And he, tears in his eyes, he was like, ah. He went, ah. He, ah. he couldn't talk. And he's like, it's so great. You know, he was speechless because we gave a vision of what is coming and what will come. But what they aren't even um, introduced to, the world would be great. Oh, and then I said there was something during that lecture, I remember, now this was years ago. And I said that... Uh, uh, and you kids, you're the new generation. You're the ones that will bring these new things forth. And then one girl, uh, she she heard that as a burden. You could feel it in the way she reacted. Oh God, do we have to. And I said, but no, this is not a burden. I said this is will be your joy because different people, just following their own nature, their own path, like I talked about earlier in this podcast, will give expression to values that will feed and nourish the world, and it won't feel like a burden, it will feel like a joy, like a musician playing a beautiful music instrument, or a scientist discovering anything in physics. And through our joy, we will transform the world into a great place, and it will happen. And if you really look at the news right now, all the crazy stuff with the politicians, and gosh, it's so exasperating. But the great part, and even the stuff going on in California, which is just unbelievable, but, but uh, that hand has been overplayed. And what's going to happen is, and it is happening, is people are waking up and saying, you know what? All this foolishness going on in the internet, all this foolishness going on with computers, this and that and that and all the craziness, we're done. And it's going to just naturally... Um, bring forth an awakening to a really great world, a golden age. Just this was amazingly predicted, you know, by, by Lord Krishna 5,000 years ago, for goodness sake. And you see it all over in numerology, astrology, Jyotish here and there. And you don't even need all that stuff if you just look at what's going on. The grassroots are healthy, and they're looking around. And they're saying, "This is all nuts. We're not going to do it anymore." And that's one of the great things about the internet: people all over the world are looking at what's going on and saying, "That's nuts. We're not going to do it anymore." So that the this the, the little um, oligarchs, the um, uh, totalitarians, who are trying to take over the world. For, through su- suppression of speech as, as was always off. That's how it was done in the past. They take over, how do they, how do they, how do they take over a, a, a country? First they su- suppress speech and then they feed them a new paradigm. And this is what you have to believe. That's over. It's not going to work anymore. It's a new world, you know, and people are, are waking up, you know, and, and they're not going to get away with calling all of these things conspiracy theories anymore because there's just too much out there. Plus, they've overplayed their hand and the stuff they're pushing out is just too ridiculous. So it's a great world and it's going to get greater. And we are in a time period now of a great awakening. And, and uh, the transition, it's going to be. A transition, and we just don't want it to be an Armageddon. We want it to be a smooth, seamless transition and a blossoming, as opposed to an annihilation of the craziness that it was. So that we can redevelop society in a new and healthy way, and that's a really a big purpose of Mount Soma. Is we want to create this Stapathya veda generator of the coherence and. The, to purify the global consciousness and all that so that that transition happens smoothly and quickly. And it's just a matter of technology. And these scholars in India, they have that. And I've worked with them. I've known them for years. We've worked together for years. Uh, The the Sri Sameshra temple that's built here was based on that knowledge. And we're going to unfold it to create the whole enlightened city that the Rishis from the Veda have talked about that can do this. And that's what this is all about. And that's what we're doing. And uh, I guess that's it for now, Scotty, unless you have something more. Okay, so we'll uh, talk with you again next week. And thank you for listening.